All right, so if you have your Bible, open and find the Old Testament book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 13, and without question, we will be covering the largest passage or portion of Scripture we've covered yet in our study through Joshua. We're actually going to be thinking about chapters 13 through 21. All right, so covering a whole lot of ground. We'll only have two more Sundays after today before we finish this study just in the nick of time before the fall semester begins and if you're not aware already when the fall semester begins Sunday August the 15th will be our first big Sunday we will begin a study through the New Testament book of Revelation and um, I'm really looking forward to that hope you are too so back to Joshua I know it seems like a huge passage to be thinking about all in one morning and 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 it for sure is a bunch of chapters uh, but if you're and if you're able to read it ahead of time I commend you for that, by the way. If you did, you'll know why we're covering this much all at once because um, we're now, with this passage, coming to the third major section in the book of Joshua. Um, Recall again that uh, chapters 1 through 5 chronicled the peoples of Israel's preparation to enter into the promised land. Thinking back to chapter 1, just think about how the book began and... and, um, all the admonitions, it was, I mean, over and over and over again in chapter 1, all the admonitions from Joshua to the people or from the Lord to Joshua then to carry on to all the people to be strong and courageous and that they would be, and, and the, the motivation from the first chapter but being repeated all through that opening section for them to be strong and courageous as they go in and take the land, he, they were reminded of the Lord's presence with them, of His promise to them, of His providence over them, with all of these blessings, be strong and courageous and go. And those themes really flavored the first part of Joshua as they were on the brink of entering the promised land. And then beginning in chapter 6, uh, running all the way through chapter 12, which we finished last week, we saw their, their actual conquests to take the promised land. Those were some tough chapters. Those were the toughest chapters to read and to slog through uh, in this study because of how violent they are and just battle after battle just ruthlessly so uh but important things to think about in those chapters and uh, so we've seen their preparation to enter then their conquest to take the land and now beginning in chapter 13 running all the way through chapter 21 we enter into the exciting world of portioning out the land tribe by tribe by tribe And someone who has read these chapters before, which is why I said I commend you for that. I commend that practice to you every time we gather. It's one one benefit of just teaching through books of the Bible. Wherever we left off last week, you kind of know where we're going to pick up next week. And you can read it ahead of time. But especially these chapters, if you did that, commend you for it. Um, I said said the exciting world in jest, you know, um, because compared to um, the second portion of Joshua, and let's be honest, compared to almost any other chapters in Scripture, they're anything but exciting. Um, It's more or less, you know, beginning in 13, just just chapter after chapter, it's this tribe gets this, and here are the boundaries of that, and that those tribes get that over there, and here are the boundaries of that, and on and on for for uh, 12 tribes. Well, it well there's there's exceptions. Levi doesn't get his own tribe, his own land. They're they're scattered about. And you got some other tribes that are doing their own funky thing. But anyway, um, really exciting, right? But it's, it's precisely here 
And I've already mentioned these a number of times through the study, but it's especially when we come to passages like this that you are really tempted to just kind of skip over if you're reading uh, through Joshua or trying to do a Bible reading plan through the year and you get to this like, oh my goodness. It's, ex- it's especially in passages like this where you need to remember what Scripture says about itself. Right? So by the inspiration of God, it says that. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You could probably quote it in your sleep. All Scripture is breathed out by God and, on that basis, profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So we know that is true for any passage of Scripture you come to, every passage of Scripture you come to, including these in Joshua. And you might wonder how in the world a a list of tribal allotments of land could teach me, reprove me, correct me, train me in righteousness. And to that I would say you might be surprised. Okay? And remember also what Paul said in Romans 15, 4, that whatever was written in former days, that would be Joshua and many other, old, all the other Old Testament books, were written for our instruction. Right? So we can be confident there, that there are good things to be seen in these tribal allotments that will teach us in the faith, that will reprove us, will correct us, will train us in righteousness in Christ. So it's too long of a segment to to read it ahead of time like we normally do. Uh, So we're just going to pray before we dive into it. And after we pray, I'll lay out what I'd like us to see. And believe me, there is a lot more here than what I will draw out this morning. But then we'll take a closer look at it. So let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are... Um, confident, we, we believe uh, what you have said in your word, that these chapters, as well as every other in Scripture, are your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. It is our joy and it's our privilege to, to open this book week after week and hear from you. So, Lord, I pray that as we open your word this morning, that you might give us eyes to see the truth in these pages. Would you give us minds to clearly understand that truth? Would you give us hearts to then embrace that which we see and and understand? Give us wills to obey whatever it is that you admonish us to do. Please give us all ears to hear. Give me the help that I need to teach. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're just going to draw out a few things here in these in these long in this long passage uh there's a lot more here but i'm just going to point to three three things that i want us to see and in a way they sort of answer the questions that we often ask what does this teach me about god was it teach us about myself was it lead me to do so sort of loosely the three things that i'm going to draw out they sort of relate to those questions I, i i saw it after the fact i didn't think that going in, but it kind of does. So first, I want us to consider a picture of goodness, a picture of goodness, particularly as it relates to the Lord God. Um, We'll see glimpses and aspects of his goodness all throughout this long section. Uh, So we won't limit this to any one chapter that we see this, but I will try to see it throughout where we can. 
a picture of goodness. Second, we're going to consider the courage of faith. The courage of faith. And we'll see this in a, particularly in a, a unit of chapters within this longer section, chapters 14 through 17. Um, we won't look at everything in those chapters, but what I do want to draw your attention to in that smaller unit of chapters 14 through 17 are the bookends of those chapters. Um, and you'll see what I mean when we get there, the courage of faith. And then thirdly and finally, I want us to think about the danger of compromise. Um, This is something that if you did read through these chapters that you simply could not miss uh, if you were reading them carefully. Like if you were reading carefully straight through these chapters, especially if you did so in one sitting, which I really encourage you to do a lot. Like, sure, if if in your daily quiet times you read small chunks or a verse or a small portion of Scripture, that's great. But maybe on the weekends or something, just have a long read, right? Read a long passage of Scripture. Maybe read a whole book. I've told you many, many times Leviticus is a great book to do that with, right? Let's go Leviticus. Um, but passages like this would be a, a good one, and, um, and you would see what I'm talking about, this danger of compromise. So that's what I want us to see. And uh, so let's dive in and think first about a picture of goodness. And, and I said earlier, there's a lot of things that you could see in, in this many chapters. Um, and there's a lot of things about God's goodness that you could see in, the, in these many chapters. But on this particular note, I want to highlight two aspects of God's goodness that we can see in these chapters. The first is his faithfulness, and the other is his justice. Both of these things, faithfulness, God's faithfulness, God's justice, they, A, they are things we've talked about before. They are things that could be talked about in their own right. But it's, it's really encouraging, I think, to sometimes step back and, and, and remember that these characteristics, the faithfulness of God, the justice of God, are actually specific aspects of this broader aspect of God, His goodness. His goodness. Right? So, because when we say God is good, well, that's an empty, vacuous statement if you don't add any kind of specificity to it. Because I mean, if you say God is good and somebody, uh, in, when Scripture says God is good, if somebody says, in what way? How is God good? Then you've got to start defining it. And often, when you start talking or adding specificity to God's goodness, you're going to bring up things like, He's faithful. He's just. Right? So where do we see these things in, his, in, the, in these chapters? Think, thinking first about the faithfulness of God, you see it right off the bat in chapter 13 uh, in the opening verses of this segment, verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7 are sort of the prologue to this whole long, lengthy set of chapters. Um, and it begins there uh, by noting that there actually were some different people still living in parts of the promised land that had not yet been fully driven out. That'll come up again. Um, but God gives them still again this, this promise in, in verse 6. If you're looking there, at, in the middle of verse 6, God, even though that's still the case, there's still some people living in outposts of the promised land that have not yet been driven out. He says, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. So he, his, his presence is still going to be with them. His promise is still to them. 
His providence is still over them. What was true in chapter 1 is still true in chapter 13. I want to add also that this is noteworthy not only because of what the promise is, right, but when, when God is reminding them of it. Recall that the first time you met this promise in the book of Joshua was in chapter 1, and what what are the opening words of the book of Joshua? Basically, Moses had died. Moses was dead. And, and that right there alerts you that it was that, that was this precarious time in the life of Israel. Like, the, your, your leader, the one who led you out of Egypt, I mean, the, the, out of slavery, 430 years of slavery, this guy was dead, and it was a precarious time, and the people could say, what are we going to do? And God says, I'm still here. I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I'm still with you, Right? You get that same promise again here, and again, the, the when of it is similar. Because I, I think my favorite verse, jokingly I say that, in Joshua is verse 1 of chapter 13. I love, if you just read it out loud, it says, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Uh, I knew that. Um, but seriously, the death of Joshua was impending. He was old and advanced in years. So the people of Israel were again at a critical point in in their history, soon to be without their leader, whom God had clearly blessed. I mean, yeah, we don't have time to rehearse it all. And when their faith was at that weak point, precisely at this point, God in that promise reminded them of his faithfulness to them. Like reminding them that he, not Joshua, just like not Moses, was the one driving out their enemies, that he would continue to do that for them. That's, that's where we first see his faithfulness here. But like verse 7, the very next verse, introduces what will be to come in these nine chapters. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes of, and half-tribe of Manasseh. And the reason it's that funky number is because that remember the, the tribes, it's going to say it the rest of chapter 13, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. Remember, they were like, hey, we, don't, we like it here on this other side of the Jordan. We, our, our cows really like it. So we're, we're going to help you guys fight the battles, and we're going to help you move in. But when we do that, we're going back. So they, they went back across. And, uh, and then so it's, it's up to the rest of the tribes. And then you get chapter after chapter after chapter seemingly ceaselessly recounting boundaries of allotments and tribe after tribe after tribe. And again, if you were reading this on your own straight through this, I mean, you would be tempted to skip over a good bit of it. Like, I get it, right? But to do that would be skipping over literal historical record of God's faithfulness. Like literal, written down for you evidence of God's faithfulness. I love how um, one of my favorite commentators, I've already mentioned him several times on Joshua, is Ralph Davis. I love how he explains what we see in these chapters. He says, the land promise had long ago been given to Abraham. Genesis 12, verses 6 and 7. Genesis 15, 7 through 21. 
So the land promise had long ago been given to Abraham, and it was often reaffirmed, and it was picked up in Joshua 1, and here we see its concrete fulfillment. The reader must remember that these chapters describe in detail God's gift of the land, and that means every town name and border point pulsates with excitement. No close-up description of God's gifts could ever be boring. Perhaps the contemporary Christian needs some analogy to get a handle on this. And here's the analogy he gives. And he sort of breaks away from commentator writing right here. He just says, it's a Tuesday morning as I write this. Nothing outstanding has happened. Two of our boys have had their breakfast. Not significant, except that it is another fulfillment of Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Today's also garbage pickup day. We have three bags. More than usual, but not a big deal. But he says simply having garbage is a sign of God's provision. And even though my wife pulled an irritating April Fool's prank on, my, on, on me already, she herself is living fulfillment of Yahweh's covenant promise for example, Proverbs 19, 14, a prudent wife is from the Lord. Not one of these details staggers the imagination, but like the boundaries and towns of Judah, they are little incarnations of God's fidelity and are, therefore, hardly boring. We overlook so, I do, look at so many blessings, like so many. I looked up, all right, full confession, like this is me this morning. Some campers were here this week. I feel like they had a house party here this week. I come in and stuff was left on and screens weren't working, microphones weren't working, that wall was broken, like it wouldn't even close, and there's a stain on the stage. I'm like, I'm like going into dad mode, about like looking for the kids to get on to. But I look back, hey, who gives a flying rip? But also, it's just a reminder that we have all of these things to mess up from time to time. Like, just so many blessings in our lives that are clear evidence of God's faithfulness to us. And an exclamation point is put on this faithfulness at the very end of the section. So flip all the way to chapter 22. And just, just imagine when you get there, just keep in mind how Ralph Davis just told us to think about these chapters how every town name and border pulsates with excitement, and imagine that you've chapter after chapter after chapter of that, and with that frame of mind, look at chapter 21, verses 43 through 45. Uh, it's like the absolute crescendo of the whole section, and it's an exclamation mark after nine of these chapters. He says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord God had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. God was faithful to all his promises. And he hasn't changed. 
He hasn't moved. If anything, we move from time to time. He doesn't move. All of, all of these promises, because we, we don't have time to go into it, but we've already seen that the rest, the rest that he gave them in this physical promised land under Joshua was just a, it was just a, a, a picture of a greater rest coming in Jesus Christ. And it was, it was not even a, the, the real thing. It was just prelude to the real thing coming. And all of, all of the, these promises were prelude to that, and, and to that Paul reminds us of that real rest in Jesus Christ that all of the, in, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. But God's good, goodness isn't just seen in His faithfulness to His word and promise, but also in His justice. I mean, his justice is just another aspect of his goodness, and we see that most clearly in chapter 20, um, where the Lord established in the land cities of refuge. Chapter 20, cities of refuge. That, what were they for? They were for people guilty of an accidental crime. Right? So if you looked at Joshua 20, verses 2 and 3, uh, say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. And they would be there, the people would go there until a fair like trial had taken place, right? When we won't linger long on this point, I just want you to see it. But when Laura and I um, spent a summer in Uganda a number of years ago, uh, I remember we were driving in the city not far outside of Kampala, which is the capital. The city was Jinja uh, in Uganda. And um, we drove by a store where there was a big commotion. As we got closer to it, we realized it was a mob of people beating a man <laughs> like just going to town on him and uh, we asked why and they said the guy had shoplifted and so the people just took it in their own hands and beat the fool out of this guy um, and it doesn't take long to see how that kind of justice could easily turn into injustice uh, because a mob can a mob even when, the, even when the accusation is true, a mob can get whipped up so easily that the reaction to it is not in keeping with what happened. It's unjust in that way. Also, even if the, the accusation is not true, if it's a lie, a mob doesn't know the difference and just gets unjustly whipped up in the first place. And uh, we see that I mean, you're not, you're not going to go by Dollar General and see a mob beating up a dude because he stole a toothbrush. Well, this is what social media is every day. It's what social media is. Mobs getting mad. Twitter's an angry place. I'm going to say that. It is, and it's, it's messing up the world. I'm not over. I'm not. I, 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 you, you may disagree with that. I, I don't. It's, it's, it's messing up the world because people are just, it's just mob reaction all the time. And if you don't, if you don't form an opinion quickly enough, 
then your silence is complicity, and then you, you know. But if you have to make a, 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 a reaction to some accusation quickly, you're, you're bound to make the wrong one, and you could, you could, I mean, you know, it's just an awful place. I'm just, you know, do what you will with that. But here, here, we see that God cares about justice and truth. And however long it takes to arrive at that place, God literally moves to a city of refuge, and it may take a minute to sort through all the mess. That's okay. It's just a clear reminder also of his goodness to us that in Christ he fully satisfied his justice against us so that he could justify the ungodly without compromising his goodness. Even in chapters like these, we see such amazing pictures of the goodness of God. That's not all we see in these these chapters. When we look at these chapters from yet another angle, we see a second helpful picture here, which I think is, I'm calling the courage of faith. The courage of faith. So I said earlier that we see this particularly in chapters 14 through 17. In this whole uh, section, chapter 13 all the way to 21, these chapters form sort of their own little unit within it. How so? They are bookended by two important people in Israel's history. Who are they? Joshua and Caleb. Who were they? They were the... When they sent out the tw- when Moses sent out the twelve spies the first time to spy out the promised land, ten of them came back and said, "No way, they're big, they're mighty." Joshua and Caleb were the two of the twelve who said, "Let's go, right? God, God will fight for us. Let's go, right?" And so you can read about that in Numbers chapter thirteen. When you get to Joshua chapter fourteen, you meet up with Caleb again. It, this, this section begins off with Caleb, and in verse 7, Caleb says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. So he was 40 years old then. While we're at it, look down at verses 10 and 11. The very end of chapter, uh, verse 10, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. I mean, Caleb was a bad man. You don't even want to mess with 85-year-old Caleb, dude. Like, woo. But even back in Numbers 13 and 14, when he was 40-year-old Caleb going out to spy out out the land, uh, you saw the courage of Caleb. You saw the courage, along with Joshua, by the way, of bringing a report that was contrary to what all the others were saying and the others, by the way, Numbers 14, they tried to put them to death for it, tried to stone them to death, but the Lord stopped it. But 45 years later, 85-year-old Caleb, Caleb's courage still had the same root here as it did then. It was his faith in the, in the Lord. And, and, and still here we see that is still true. No, just notice how many times, if you, you know, we didn't have the benefit of reading this ahead of time, but notice how many times in what Caleb says here, How many times he makes reference to God's word, what God had said. And that's on what the basis he's he's got this confidence and courage. He says in in the middle of verse 6, You know what the Lord said to Moses. 
the man of God in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. He's talking to Joshua there. You know what God said. Verse 10. Let's get down to verse 10. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses. He spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. Verse 12. So now give me this country of which, of which the Lord spoke on that day. You, for you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord has said. I mean, over and over and over again, Caleb makes reference to the word of God. What the Lord said to Moses. The Lord has kept me alive just as he said. This country of which the Lord spoke. I shall drive them out just as the Lord had said. Faith in the, in the word and the promise of God is what gave him the courage of faith that he had. He was constantly, apparently, as much as he talks about it, he was constantly thinking and dwelling on all that the Lord had said. And as Psalm 1 says, the one who meditates on the law day and night is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. Then you go to the other end of the unit in chapter 17, to the end of chapter 17, to the other bookend. And you have, according to verse 16, the people of Joseph, that would be Ephraim and half the tribe of Manasseh. The other half took their cows to the other side of the river. But it says the people of, Israel, the people of Joseph said, the hill country is, is not enough for us, and yet all the Canaanites, the Canaanites who dwell in the plain, they have chariots of iron, both in Bethsheen and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. What does that sound like? It sounds like the, 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 the fear of the ten spies 40 years earlier, right? But who replies to them here? Joshua, the other, the other guy. And he tells them at the end of verse 18, the end of the last verse of the chapter, not to be afraid of the Canaanites for their chariots of iron. He says, you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron. Though they are strong. How does Joshua know that? How can Joshua tell them that? Because the Lord had promised it. He had promised it. And he had the same confidence that Caleb did. Not in himself, not in their army, but in the Lord to keep his word. That's a lesson for us. That is the same source of courage in our lives uh, as, as we walk by Faith in His Word. It's the courage of faith in His Word for us still today. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God works through the Scriptures. It's why, unless God just graciously wants to do a, a gracious work, and I'm not saying He can't, but in the ordinary course of things, you will not walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit apart from fullness of His Word. Right? The Holy Spirit works through the Word and He moves in our hearts to trust more in it. There is no anchor. There is, there's no anchor for your faith apart from His Word and promises. Right? The longer that you read and pray over and memorize and meditate on His Word and promises, the Holy Spirit will develop in you over time 
instincts of faith. Just instinctive reactions of trust. Right? No matter the circumstances that might call for it. No matter. So we've seen pictures of God's goodness. We've seen the courage of faith in Caleb and in Joshua and what it was rooted in. God's word and promise. But we need to consider a real danger also that these chapters present to us before we come to a close. And that is the dangers, the danger of compromise. The danger of compromise. There is, as I said, as I said earlier, there's a, a constant refrain throughout these all these chapters that we don't need to miss. So flip with me on this little journey through the passage. So go all the way back to chapter 13. And when you're in chapter 13, look at verse 13. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or Maacathites, but Gesher and Maacath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Okay, so other, other folks still there. Flip over to chapter 15. And go to the end of the chapter, verse 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Chapter 16, verse 10. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. But there, there they were. Chapter 17, verses 12 and 13. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not utterly drive them out. And because that's the trend that you see in chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, Joshua says in chapter 18, verse 3, Joshua said to the people, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Here's what I posit. I think the people of Israel probably felt like they had done it. Like they had done enough. Like they had, hey, they were in the land. We did fight some pretty crazy battles at Jericho, at Ai, at all these kings who came together to fight against us. We did all that. Here we are. We won. We're in the land. And look at what they had done in chapter 18, verse 1. What did they do? Whole congregation of the people people of Israel assembled at Shiloh, and they set up what? The tent of meeting there. Hey, we're not only here, we've, we've set up the tabernacle. We're faithful. So they thought they were, they were probably doing as they ought to have. But they were compromising on driving out all their enemies, as the Lord had told them to do. Sure, they made some of them to do forced labor, but they still allowed them to live in the land and no doubt those people continued to worship their false gods in the land. 
even as the rest of Israel gathered at the tabernacle. There is no doubt that here, we always talk about the low, the, one of the low points of the Old Testament is the book of Judges. These are, this is the seeds. This, this is the seeds of the book of Judges. This is why you have the book of Judges. It doesn't seem serious at this point, but the damage was being done. Again, to, let me, Ralph, I, Ralph Davis puts it so well. He says, this incomplete obedience, it brings no immediate crisis. That's why it's so deceptive. Compromise doesn't make much of a difference sometimes immediately. It brings no immediate crisis. It seldom does. However, here is testimony to all God's people. We frequently and strangely we prove to be faithful in the great crisis of faith. We remain steadfast in severe storms, perhaps even relish the excitement of heavy assaults, yet we lack the tenacity of the dogged endurance, the patient plotting often required in the prosaic affairs of believing life. We are often loath to be faithful in what we regard as little. That's so true. Obedience in, in small things, the, 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 what he calls the plodding, plodding, plodding along, plodding of the obedience. In the little things of daily life, they often seem harder to us than mustering the faith to do very hard things. But compromise in the little things will often breed bigger compromise down the road. We see it literally play out here in Israel, beginning here in Joshua, followed by Judges. The admonition to us would be to learn from them and heed the call of Christ, therefore, on us to abide in him daily and to take up our cross daily. He added that word in Luke 9, 23. Take up our cross daily and follow him. Let's pray. Well, Lord, um, thank you for your word. Thank you for even in the most seemingly mundane of passages, there are riches to be found. Even that passage instructed us, taught us, reproved us, corrected us, trained us in righteousness. And uh, Lord, we just thank you for the few minutes we have to, to think about these things. And we pray that when we do leave this room to go into the next, we pray that you would meet with us there as well as we hear the preaching of the word and sing praises to your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.